The job of customers is not to tell you what product they want. The job of customers is to tell you what their problems are, what the things that are that bug them. And it's your job to figure out a clever way to solve uh, kind of what bugs them. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, coming to you from the Road 55 studio in Edmonton, Alberta, where every episode we feature a different thought leader or best-selling author, all in the name of helping you become the best leader you can be. You're gonna to love today's conversation with Roger Martin. We talk about how oftentimes when businesses are not performing to the level that you expect, it's not because of work ethic or desire, it's more because the models that guide our actions are insufficient. Roger also gets very personal with us and shares some of his own stories from going from a Harvard graduate student to becoming a world-renowned thought leader and best-selling author. We also get into social media and some of the consequences that's happening right now when Kim Kardashian can earn as much money in a single tweet as Cindy Crawford earned across the entirety of her career. You're gonna enjoy this conversation. Now my very special guest today is Roger Martin. In 2017, Roger was named the world's number one management thinker by Thinkers 50, a biannual ranking of the most influential global business thinkers. Roger is a trusted strategy advisor to the CEOs of companies worldwide, including Procter & Gamble, Lego, and Ford. Roger is a professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management and University of Toronto, where he served as dean from 1998 to 2013, academic director of the Michael Lee Chin Family Institute for Corporate Citizenship in 2004 to 2019, and Institute Director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 to 2019. In 2013, he was named Global Dean of the Year by leading business school website Poets and Quants. His newest book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Managerial Effectiveness, comes out in May. His previous 12 books include When More Is Not Better, Creating Great Choices, written with Jennifer Riel, Getting, uh, getting Beyond Better, written with Sally Osberg, and of course, Playing to Win, written with A.G. Lafley, which won the award for Best Book of 2012-2013 by Thinkers50. He's written 30 Harvard Business Review articles. Roger received his BA from Harvard College with a concentration in economics in 1979, and his MBA from the Harvard Business School in 1981. He resides in South Florida with his wife, Marie-Louise Scafti. Roger, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to Unleashed. Thank you. It's great. It's great to be with you. Can I make a little plug, Jeff? I noticed in the in the lead up role next week you've got Bob Sutton uh, on the on the podcast. For those of you who are listening here who don't know Bob's work, he's he's in my view one of the ten most intriguing, interesting, insightful management thinkers in the world. So so tune in uh, tune in next week would be my thought. Bob is terrific. Yeah, Roger, thank you so much. I'm sure he would say the same thing about you. And uh, I, you know, I feel pretty lucky every episode to be uh, to be talking to people like you and Bob. So thanks, thank you for that endorsement. Not at all. It's uh, it's true. <laughs> so we uh, we have, there's a bit of a rare occurrence, Roger. I I have to admit, uh, I get a lot of ribbing for my uh, for my love of the New England Patriots, but I understand you're a Patriots fan as well. 
I am, and, and I consider myself sort of a legitimate one because I was a fan of theirs when I was in college and business school and they were horrible. They were just horrible for so so many years. And so I was a long suffering fan. And uh, and then over the last the last while, all of that uh, patience has, has uh, paid off. So we're, I'm cautiously optimistic that this year will be better than uh, last year, which was better than the year before. So we shall see. Yeah, it seems to be getting tougher and tougher by the day, though, with uh, with some of the movement that's happening uh, in the AFC, and of course the move the Dolphins made yesterday. But uh, but we digress. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I also have to say there was uh, I, I had an equal parts excitement and trepidation to speak with you today, and I'm going to tell you why I had some trepidation. I have a Bachelor of Commerce degree, and. Uh, yes. I feel a little bit ashamed that I didn't pay more attention in economics class. And so I can already hear my instructor, Erhan Herkut, if he was you know, tuning in today. So Roger, at any point along the way of the discussion, if you feel some disappointment that I don't know more about economics, don't hold back because I deserve it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I thank you for telling me. I, I, don't, I don't think that will be a problem. I, I was trained in uh, economics originally, and uh, I think uh, it is a mixed blessing. It is it is a mixed blessing. There's a, there's over application of economic theory in the modern uh, world in 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 my uh, in my view, and so so I I don't I don't think you missed anything. <laughs> well, that's fair, and I pre I appreciate uh, I appreciate that support. So you've got your thirteenth <laughs> book coming out in May, entitled "A New Way to Think." What was, uh, and it's, you're not that far removed from writing your last book, When More Is Not Better. I mean, that's only, I mean, I don't think that's only a couple of years old now. So what, yeah. what was going on? What were you seeing in the world, Roger, that was sort of served as the impetus for, for writing another book so quickly? Yes. Well, it's, it, 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 in truth, Jeff, it isn't quickly from my perspective. I've written a book every two years for the last couple of decades. So, so it's, it's sort of my, it's sort of my normal, uh, normal cycle, but the, what I saw going on in the world that, that inspired it is, is I guess I've just seen executives stick with models that don't work for longer than I would have imagined. Right. So one of my favorite, favorite examples on this one is, is in order to, <clears throat> get senior executives to pursue more shareholder value maximization, you should provide them with heavy stock-based compensation incentives, right? That's been a theory since, you know, famous article in 1976 by Michael Jensen and Bill Meckning uh, that sort of said that you've got to create that alignment through stock-based compensation. Otherwise you'll have this agency uh, problem. So we're talking close to 50 years. Uh, now, you would think, you would think that there would be some good, solid analysis that would demonstrate that sometime in the last 50 years, uh, the, the provision of stock-based compensation incentives uh, for performance of CEOs would have created better shareholder value performance. There isn't. Yeah. So, and that's one of the sections. So after, so after 50 years when something doesn't work, you keep doing it yeah. like that. So that's, that's sort of the motivation. It's these things seem to stick with us for longer than I would have ever thought. So, and that's one of the sections in your book and a question I wanted to get to. So let's go there right now. What, what do, why is putting shareholders' interests actually inversely associated with shareholder value? 
Well, it's because the, the way we've done it, the theory that we've used to do it kind of presumes that, that one, and you can do this directly, right? Um, and, and you can't. I mean, it's like, like trying to get somebody to love you. I mean, you can tell them, I love you. I want you to love me uh, directly. Right? But that's probably not going to do it. In fact, they'll probably kind of love you less or, or go find somebody else who's, who's, less, who's less annoying. It's by doing other things that the net result is that love and, love and affection. Uh, and so, so there's in shareholder value maximization, the idea that saying that you want to do it and providing incentives, monetary incentives for people to do it won't help that out, right? What will help you get that is by doing the things that inevitably lead to shareholder value maximization. So, I mean, I think, I think there was a better theory. It is in 1948, Robert Wood Johnson, founder of Johnson & Johnson, right? He's, he's, he uh, created a credo uh, that's engraved in granite in their headquarters that says uh, customers, he says patients because their customers were paid. Patients come first, employees come second, Communities in which we operate come third and last. He didn't even say next. He said last come the shareholders. But if we do the first three well, they will earn a fair return. And last time I checked, Johnson & Johnson is worth about 300 billion. It was probably worth, I don't know, 500 million when, when, it, was, when it was founded. So not pursuing shareholder value maximization. In that case, putting it not, not second, not third, last uh, is what got you shareholder value maximization. That to me is a better theory. That's a better model to pursue than to pursue aggressively shareholder value maximization and saying that's what, it, what it's all about. It's all about. Right, so put customers first. And, I, and, and Roger, if I'm not mistaken, that credo has got Johnson & Johnson through some pretty significant crises. Yes, yeah, it got them through the Tylenol, Tylenol uh, uh, crisis where they did something that at the time everybody said, whoa, I mean, that's, that's crazy. You're taking all the Tylenol off the shelves because you know, in one store, in one city, they were, uh, they were spiked with cyanide and, and, people, and people died. And J&J &J said, yeah, that's, we've, got to, we've got to put better barrier protection uh, on it and we can't have old bottles of, of Tylenol on the shelf. And so we'll write off, I think it was 300 million if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. uh, so, but that is saying customers come first. Now I would say things have not gone as well on that front. Recently, they're strongly implicated in the opioid, opioid crisis. And so I think the credo has faded uh, some, which is a sad, sad thing, given what a great company Johnson & Johnson has been. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Roger, you also talk about competition in your new book, and you've got some really interesting perspectives on that. What do we get wrong oftentimes about competition? I think we, we think competition happens at a, a level that is inconsistent with how customers uh, think about it. We think that Coke, Coca-Cola Limited competes with PepsiCo, for example. Um, but it, in, in my view, that's not really where the competition really happens. It happens at the level of, of mm, I want a sports drink. Do I want Powerade? 
or do I want Gatorade, right? You don't say, do I want a beverage made by the Pepsi, uh, Pepsi uh, Co Limited or the Coca-Cola company, it's a Gatorade or Powerade. If you want a bottle of wa water, uh, again, you don't say, do I want a Coke product or a Pepsi product? You say, do I like Dasani or do, do I like Aquafina? And even, even with the colas, it's do I want uh, you know, Diet Coke or, or, or Diet Pepsi? So why that's important is competition takes place at, at what I think of as the coal face of, of competition, where a, a customer, whether it's a B2B customer, you know, buying, a, buying an aircraft or, or, a, a, or a control system or a consumer, they are looking at products that are facing off against one another. Therefore, to me, the duty of the corporation is it's gotta be helping the business that's at the customer coal phase win. If it is not, it has no utility, in fact, as negative utility. So this whole idea that the corporation exists to control and coordinate set goals, make sure people, are, the company, the entities below are doing their job right. That, that's not a useful uh, uh, role. It's, it's a bureaucratic role. And this is why big companies are getting split apart because they're not creating roles, uh, not creating utility that counts at the customer uh, goal phase. So in some sense, competition takes place there and every level above the coal face has to figure out how it can help the coal face compete to a greater extent all the way to the top of the company. Right. And when, when you say that, you know, competition exists more on the front lines, it really resonates with me. And I, I, I often think about a, a grocery store. I think about Safeway oftentimes and that the competition is won or lost by the quality of the cashier, as an example, I'm not interacting with yes. the CEO of Safeway. I'm interacting with Nancy, who's always checked my groceries out, right? And she knows my name, and she's friendly, and she does a good job, and and like that's where the competition is sort of won or lost. Is that a little bit about what yeah, you're getting at? Absolutely. And do you even care what other cities than the one you live in Safeway has stores? Not at all. Totally irrelevant to you. Do you care if Safeway has stores in the other? half of you know the, geographically the other half of your city you, you know you don't you don't care would you care if they had a subsidiary that also did you know i don't know uh pet uh, you know kind of uh, pet care or something something like that you yeah. know kind of no you you you're your perfect example of, of competition at that coffee that's what you care about and so if that cash, cash that nancy your your uh, cash register person um is is an unhappy a person because the corporation Safeway, the hundred billion dollar company, uh, uh, you know, at, at the at the corporate level, uh, created an edict that says we are going to have longer hours and and no flexibility on on allowances for childcare, right? Because we're in charge here and 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 we're going to make those those uh, those rules, and and Nancy is then unhappy the next time you check out that influences you and that influences your loyalty uh, uh, to there. 
Um, if instead, if instead Stafeway's got a training program that helps her feel that she's trained on the latest technology so that when they bring in new technology at, the, at, her, at her station, she knows how to, how to use it. If they've got, if they've, they've figured out how to do scheduling because they're a really big organization scheduling that's, that's user-friendly for single moms, let's, let's, uh, let's say that helps her, her deal with their childcare. And so she comes to work kind of joyously then the corporation has added value at the coal phase, uh, not, con not constrained or diminished value at the coal phase. Yeah, isn't that profound? That is very profound. So you've, you've mentioned a few things there in terms of how we treat our employees and the impact it has on competition. It also occurs to me that so often as executives and owners, we lull ourselves into a false sense of confidence and they'll congratulate ourselves for being masters of the universe because we've figured out this, you know, this strategic plan and we've got this, you know, the value proposition that nobody else in the market can touch us on, but that's really not what it's all about. So what, what are the implications then for how executives should be spending a bit more of their time if we agree that competition resides more at the front lines? Well, it's to make sure that the, the people at the front lines um, understand their role very well and are free to make the choices necessary to keep you happy, right? Um, so again, if, if, uh, if Nan, let's just use, I like your, I like your example because it's a vivid one. Let's just say, say Nancy is given a extremely specific set of instructions that says when Jeff shows up at your counter or anybody, it happens to be you, Jeff, shows up, you have to do these 10 things, right? Um, and she knows you well, and she knows that you don't like number four at all. You must try to get Jeff to, to get a loyalty card. You've got to say, now, uh, sir, uh, we have this great loyalty card. And, and, and literally, she's, she's asked you that five times already. And you said, listen, I've got too many loyalty cards. I don't want it. Um, but, but because her job is so prescribed as if she can't think, then she'll, be, she'll piss you off and be miserable. If instead, right, she, she has... She has a role that says, now, Nancy, here's what, here's what we're trying to strive for. We're trying to strive for customers make, make, being made to feel warm, warm, uh, embraced, and a sense of flexibility. Um, uh, you figure that out, uh, how, to, how to do that. Then she'll be thinking about it. And she'll say, well, I know Jeff, and he doesn't want to be bugged about that. But what he really cares about, he always is interested in, is, is there anything that I've missed that's really unspecial that you brought into the store and, 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 and you'd really, really like it? He likes to be reminded of that. And I'm going to remind, uh, remind him that today, we, today in the bakery, we have these incredibly great cinnamon buns uh, that, the, that the, the bakery guy is all excited about. Right? That's turning somebody from sort of a choiceless doer that you've tried to make into automaton. And the problem with trying to make people into automatons is people make crummy computers, right? Um, you should just get a computer uh, 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 to, to do that. Instead of that, it's elevating her to a, a choice maker who can build her skills, build her ability to make her customers feel deliriously happy to be, to be shopping at Safeway so that you don't even think about shopping anywhere else. That's that's the difference between thinking about 
thinking about strategy is something that's done only at the top of the organization and everybody else in the organization is, is routinely uh, executing. Yeah, Roger, let me know if there's a different way that you'd like to approach this. But as we get into this, I can't help but think about the, the makeup of most of our listeners would be senior leaders of, of mid-size and small-size companies. And there's yep. some sequencing to this, right? And I wonder, like, Roger, could we, do you think we could distill a little bit of the sequencing of a high-performing business right from the time that they start to draft and create the strategy to then uh, creating priorities and goals that permeate all of the organization get and get right down to the front lines of Nancy? Like, can, can we do that in kind of a simplified fashion? Because I think that would be super sure. helpful for anybody that's tuning in. Sure. So, so I would say, if now with with Safeway, you've picked a, a, a gigantic uh, a company. Let's let's instead let's instead uh, make it a a, a a grocery store that operates a grocery chain that operates in one city, just for the sake of argument, and maybe has maybe has fifteen or twenty stores in <clears throat> in one city. It competes against Walmart and and Target and 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 the and uh, I don't know Wegmans or Ralphs or her Kroger's whoever. <clears throat> whoever else is in, in the market. So you'd, you'd want the, the, the people running this, and let's call it Jeff's. Uh, you'd, want, you'd want the people running Jeff's to say, okay, we've got big, big uh, mass merch, merchandisers who overlap some with us. We've got the big national uh, uh, chains, uh, grocery chains uh, competing against us. Where do we want to position ourselves? What do we want our 20 store chain to, uh, to stand for? And, and let's say that strategy is we're local. So we want to feel more, more like, like we're local. We'll have selection that is more representative of, of this local community, which, which has you know, kind of interests and, and, and the like that aren't standard national interests. Of course, they want to have Tide and Colgate and whatever, but they also want some, some, uh, uh, some uh, local, uh, local brands. And, and our people will be kind of more personable and be trying to find out more about the individual so that they can serve them better. And that'll be our niche. Okay. So that's an, that's an over, overarching strategy. What you'd want to have happen is you want to then say to the head of purchasing the, you know, buying, which is, you know, hugely important in these is to say, you need to figure out how we can be distinctive in what we uh, kind of what products we carry in the store and distinctive in a local way, right? I, I, I don't know, I'm the CEO, I don't know exactly what that would be, but I'm sure there are, are things that you could do to make us feel, feel local, kind of go get them, right? So they've got a tricky job as to what choices they need, need to make. Right then, you get your your front of store operations uh, person who's in, in in charge of all the checkouts and everything to say, you know, people have got to feel uh, this sense of it's a you're in a community store. They really care about you. You're not just in a Walmart or or, or a Target or, or or Kroger's. It's something something local. I don't know how you're going to do that exactly, but that's what you've got to try and accomplish. You 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 kind of figure you figure that out. Uh, and come back with a kind of a way that you're going to make us uh, distinctive. And in each part of the, in, in, in each 
aspect of the of the store uh you know logistics are, are we going to get things to the uh, store fresher than than our big uh, kind of national international competitors you'd have that task set out for them right and then and then that that then what you'd want is that person who's running the front front of the uh the, the store area um so so he or she's got kind of checkout people got store greeting people whatever and would say to the head of the person running a checkout okay what can we do right at checkout uh do we want less merchandising there or you know kind of uh, or, or more uh do we want it simple and clean uh do we want a completely different style of of checkouts it sort of feels more more homey and and friendly etc so for each person in that entire hierarchy you'd want them to be thinking, boy, do I have some really important decisions to make, strategic decisions to make that are in service of this broader strategic goal, but apply directly to what's in my area of, of authority, kind of all the way down to, and I'd, and I'd want literally that your Nancy in this, in this story to be told, you know, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the things that we that I think we everybody's got to do. Every checkout person has got to got to do. But you're you. You're a unique person. What do you, you think about what you can bring uh, to bear so that actually Jeff, he's got four checkout people he can go to. He'll wait a little longer to get to to Nancy because he just likes the way Nancy does does checkout and he likes the relationship he's he's uh, he's built with with her. So that, yeah. I don't know if that's, 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 yeah. uh, that's, uh, no, I think I mean, that, that, enough, that's uh, helpful. I mean, that was, I think that was, that was very succinct and very, and, and very helpful, Roger. And I, what I, some of the things I like about it is that you've, you've simplified it. And then by the time it gets down to the front lines where competition is won and lost, it's directionally correct but open for interpretation so that there's also a yes. level of autonomy, which is what every human being needs in their work environment. Yes. Yes. And you don't, and, and what, uh, there's a couple of things too, is you don't want Nancy to be, to be saying, I've got to think about the logistic system that gets stuff to this, to the stores, right? That's somebody else's job. That's not her job. That wouldn't be a good job for her, but you want Nancy to, to, to feel like she can say, you know, you know, when Jeff gets disappointed, it's he's, he comes to me and says, I wanted to buy some kind of red bell peppers. Uh, and they're, they're like pretty, they were all pretty old and tired, tired, tired looking. You'd want Nancy to be able to go to the to, to somebody in produce and say, you know, I don't, I don't know how you get peppers to here, but you should just know that, that, that I, you know, I've got customer complaints about just how fresh the, the vegetables uh, are, or maybe you, maybe it was a selection question. You'd want her to feel like she has an open uh, uh, pathway to be able to, to help people above her, uh, to help her help you. Right? Because you're you're just not going to be as happy to come to Safeway. You're not going to be as happy to be checked out by Nancy if your cart doesn't have everything in it in the quality you were hoping uh, for. She can't fix it, but you'd want her to feel like there's somebody that's going to listen and not somebody that's going to slap her down and say, last time I checked, Nancy, you are a checkout person. 
I'm the head of produce, you know, get out of my face, right? That, yeah. that, that is, that's a system where the strategy logic flows one way and not back up. You'd want the strategy logic to flow one way. So Nancy is contributing to the store strategy, contributing to the overall strategy, et cetera. But you'd also want Nancy to be helping you adjust that strategy by providing feedback from the very front lines. Yes. How do some of the best companies in the world uh, gather that feedback from the front lines? It's mainly the, the, the companies that I've seen uh, do it the best just have, have a, I guess, a culture of openness to that, that it's simply not okay for any supervisor to slap down their subordinates for bringing up things that they've learned from a source that the supervisor wouldn't necessarily uh, have. Um, and a way that happens, uh, you know, uh, you know, Costco is one of my favorite, favorite, uh, favorite companies because it's so good to its workers. Jim Senegal, right, the co-founder uh, and long, long time CEO, he's no longer CEO, but he always, he always walked stores. I mean, he he would walk stores, and when he walked stores, because he was a rock star in the stores, I mean, he would be mobbed by mobbed by the employees who all loved him. But he would be asking them. He would stand beside the butcher and just ask them, well, like you know, what are you selling? Uh, kind of what would be helpful, whatever. So it's very hard in an environment like that for anybody between Jim Senegal and the butcher to say. I'm a big cheese. I'm so important. I don't have time to talk to the butcher. Okay, so the co-founder, the multi-billionaire co-founder of this company, you know, 30 years into, uh, into being, the, being the CEO, seems to find time to talk to the butcher. Guess, guess maybe I ought to be doing that too, right? So, so it, it, again, the, you know, as, as I say, as I, as, and I say in the book, you know, culture happens uh, kind of naturally takes shape naturally as people interact with one another in, in the business. And so the, the companies that do what I've described best in answer to your question are the ones that, that have the senior management show that they listen to lower levels about stuff that the lower levels know more about, right? Yeah, that's uh, some other sage advice there. Uh, we should never be so important yeah. that we can't spend time with everybody. There's some, I think there's some themes there of Amy Edmondson's work uh, on psychological safety. Uh, She's why she, sure. by the way, so Bob Sutton is top 10 uh, in, 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 in my world of interesting thinkers. Amy for sure, for sure is. She's an old, she's a friend from, from a long ago. Both of us are students of, of uh, Chris Arger, the late uh, Chris Arger. She's, she's fabulous. And you're right. Uh, psychological safety is, is just, is hugely important. And I would argue, I would argue kind of, uh, you know, if I would have had guest authors in, in, in this in the book, I would have gotten her to write, uh, write a chapter on the theory is you got to kind of keep them intimidated or they will get out of line, right? That's the dominant theory. And Amy's theory is, uh, you know that'll give you the illusion of control, uh, but you know you will you will have disastrously bad re results. The the model you have to have is: Are people in my organization psychologically safe? Because that's the only way I'm going to get top-notch performance.
Absolutely. 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 Yeah. We had Amy on the program a year ago. It was, it was a really helpful, uh, really helpful conversation. Roger, I want to go back to something else uh, that you said in this grocery store example, this, and the, this high level strategy being local and personable. And sometimes it drives me a, a little bit, uh, a little bit bonkers when I hear companies just relying on shop local as the value prop. Because hey, I want to yeah. support local, but it's also got to be convenient, cost-effective. You got to have good good products. But one of the the question I have is when the leadership team is creating this strategy. At that point, it's a bit of a hypothesis. How else should executives be testing those hypotheses before they invest a lot of capital, capital, and like sort of executing that strategy and getting it down to Nancy? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I I would be. I would be asking Nan the Nancys of, 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 the, of the company, right? As those senior executives are creating their, their strategy choices, those in, uh, incredibly important strategy choices, what they've got to recognize is that sitting at the top of a company, you are generically farther away from the customer than those who are sitting lower down in, in, the, uh, in the organization. And so, so you know, if I were creating the strategy for that, I'd be in the stores asking people in the stores about, about customers. Now, does that mean that I would ask them what they think the strategy should be? Kind of, my, my answer would be no. And it's the same reason I say you shouldn't ask the customer what product they want, right? Customer research going out and saying, hey, what product do you want? That's not their job. The job of customers is not to tell you what product they want. The job of customers is to tell you what their problems are, what the things that are that bug them. And it's your job to figure out a clever way to solve uh, kind of what bugs them. And the same would be for Nancy. I would be, I would be asking, I'd be going around, if it were me, I'd be going around to each one of the 20 stores. I'd be sitting down with the store manager and talking to them about what, what, what do you think customers care about? What do you think you know, kind of annoys them about Kroger's? Uh, you know, a big national uh, grocery chain, or what bugs you about the mass merchants, uh, uh, etc. Et uh, I'd be asking them. I'd be asking the the, the Nancys of the, of the of the world. Tell me about customers that just love, love, love us all the crazy. What what do they see? What are they What are they getting? And utilize that information to to formulate uh, kind of my my strategy. But it's just like customers having 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 kind of Nancy and a bunch of others in the room uh, brainstorming about what our strategy should be. You know, it's not that I don't think they're they're smart. Uh, they are often often they are among the smartest. But it's not their job. It's, it's don't try to make them do a job that's other than their job. Uh, is their job to pay attention to customers? Is their job to understand uh, customers? Hell yeah. And in fact, they do it all day long and are probably better at it than anybody in the C-suite is ever gonna be. Um, and so utilize that uh, skill and capability. Yeah, yeah, well, well said. Roger, you gave uh, you gave a talk not that long ago. I think, I think it's in the last six months in Russia of all places. Oh my God. And it, it was, was hard, hard to tell what was what was going to happen at the time. Holy smokes! But yeah, yes, no you're right. 
Roger, the talk was, uh, and we'll make we'll make the link to that talk available in the post show notes. It was a wonderful, very engaging and thought provoking talk, and and um, and you you talk about some of the concepts from that particular talk in your upcoming book. I wonder if you mm -hmm. could talk a little bit about the relationship between innovation, strategy, and data, and how we get that wrong quite often. Yep. Yeah. No. This. And this again is is a is a model that's in use, and the model that that anybody who's been to business school would have been taught, which is that the only good decisions are data based decisions, right? You you were I was taught that. I'm assuming I'm assuming you're you taught that you're some kind of a corporate floozy uh, if you make decisions on anything other than data based. Yes. <laughs> well, and I spend I spend most of my time trying to justify my wild ideas and how I'm just just trust me they're going to work. Uh, I can't prove it, and uh, you know sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. So I'm, I'm maybe I'm fifty fifty if I'm lucky. Well, good for you. You 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 have set yourself free from what you were what you were taught as as dogma. So the the the, the important thing to point point out on this is is where data comes from, uh, and it comes from the past sort of at the point of analysis. So if, if you're sitting there analyzing data, right? What we know about that data beyond a shadow of a doubt is that it's from the past, right? Now Absolutely. you could say, no, I'm gonna go and collect data, right? Okay, fair enough. But then when you analyze it, it's become in, in, the, in the past. Uh, and so, so it, you know, you were taught, Jeff. I'm sure in your statistics, statistics 101 class, that that in order for you to make any inference from data about the universe you're studying, right, that data has to be representative. You know, you have to have a representative sample. Like if you're trying to find out what people think, right, about about X, and you interview only uh, uh, you know males under 18. And then say this is what people think. Your, you know, your statistics professor would say you're nuts. You're making a dangerous uh, extrapolation from an unrepresentative sample. So, by definition, this isn't my opinion. This is by definition. If you analyze data, and draw an inference from it, the only way that inference can be legitimate is if the future is identical to the past then your sample of the past will be fully representative of the universe that you're trying to, uh, to understand. Now, Jeff, you know, you've been in business for, for a while. So like how many times have you seen the future be identical to the past in the world of business? I was just reviewing my uh, my <laughs> journal from two years ago at this time frame, and I've got literally a hundred pages of handwritten notes on how the world completely changed two years ago, like right now. Yes. Yeah. So the answer is never, right? So 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 it's never exactly exactly the the, the same as the past. And this is this is the classic case of the the, the misapplication of a, of a of a model. So the, the that model of being scientific in your analysis comes out of the world of physical things, right? And so so if if if, if I if I take this this pen and I let go of it, um, it's going to drop, 
And if I and analyze pin drops in the past 100 years, you'd say, gee, every time somebody lets go of one, it drops. You can be pretty confident that it's going to drop in the future because there's a universal force called gravity that just doesn't show up on Tuesdays or in the early part of the year. It shows up every day of the year and does the exact same things the pins as they as they leave your leave your leave your hand. What we did, and so in that world, when you took data, collected data and analyzed it, you could trust it was uh, representative. Then we took that and applied it to business, a world where, I mean, last time I checked, everything changes all the, t all the time, right? I say, I say, okay, if we were doing analysis in 1999 of smartphone and smartphone usage, we would have said, well, it's zero because the first one came out in 2000, BlackBerry, right? Yeah. How many of these are there now? 4.4 billion last time I checked the, the numbers, yeah. right? And so any analysis of the data would have, you would have drawn absolutely the wrong inference from it. So it, it's one of the most fundamental problems in the world of, of business. And it's interesting, Jeff, you sound like you really are in, interested in creativity and, 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 and innovation. You know, isn't it interesting that as science has become ever more important, right? As business school students, year after year after year have taught, all decisions have to be database or you're in your corporate floozy, um, that, that uh, at the same time, there has been two things happening. One, CEOs of established companies complain more and more and more about the pace and level of innovation. And there's more and more striking examples of absolute disruption where industries are destroyed. You had, you had Borders and Barnes and Noble absolutely dominating the book selling business. And now they're gone. Like absolute disruption by some punk ass little company called Amazon, <laughs> right? Right, that had nothing, uh, but now is, now is kind of uh, worth, uh, worth uh, tr trillions. And people haven't drawn the conclusion, right? They haven't linked those two things together. As we've become more database, we have stopped ourselves from innovating in the world of business. Because, right, if you analyze the, the possibilities of the, of the smartphone industry in 1999, right, and, and you yeah. made a database decision, you'd say, ain't ever happening. Mm -hmm. And if you were Nokia and Motorola, that's kind of what you said. Right. And how are they, how have they been doing lately? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were absolutely yeah. crushed because, because they were being, being scientifically rigorous and other, other people who said, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to do this. Uh, Blackberry being the, being, being, uh, being the first, but then, but then, you know, kind of Android and, and all the Android based phones, uh, uh, iOS based uh, phones from, from, from Apple just took a hundred percent, literally a hundred percent of their market away. A market that should have been theirs, that they could have been, uh, could have been theirs, but they were being analytical. So it's this huge, it's a huge problem uh, for business. If you use analysis, it will tell you not to innovate. That's what it, yeah. that's what it'll tell you. It'll say, do not innovate. 
Yes, absolutely. I, I have a, a question about Kim Kardashian coming up, but I got a couple more before that. Uh, yes. When you so when you when you when you talk about <laughs> looking forward talk, to it. When you talk about strategy, you also talk about uh, uh, assessing the strategic decisions and ideas on their logic and and, uh, and then proving the accuracy of your logic. And I think you've, you've talked about that already. Uh, but I want to share my own fear because when I think about the example of the pen sure. and you know the pen is going to drop yeah. and that's a universal truth of yeah. gravity. Our specific business, I think, uh, is trying to help a fundamental human flaw and it's discipline. So human beings have a very difficult time implementing things that they learn. And so when I think about our own strategy, I think, well, forever, people are, human beings are always going to struggle with discipline. But then I get a little bit, a little, I get a little bit scared and nervous about making too much of an assumption that it's, I get the blinders on and away we go. So how, because you, you also say strategy, if it's done right, should scare you. I wonder if you can just talk about the fear part and then and maybe just address my own fear about getting too caught up in worrying about if I've got this universal truth of human beings having a difficult time with discipline uh, sustaining itself for a while. Sure. Well, why don't I start with the, the discipline thing? I mean, I, I, <clears throat> I don't think your, your, your fear is misplaced and, and where I would go to on that is, is habit. So people actually are quite disciplined about the habits they adopt. But getting to habit adoption is a tricky path, right? Yes. So, so I think the reason that people don't seem to be disciplined about something, so I, I don't disagree at all with your, with your observation that, wow, discipline is hard. So let's just say you have a strategy that says we're going to do this thing differently than we've done it, done it bef before, right? So, so let's just go back to Nancy because that's, that's handy. It's, we're, you know, we're, uh, uh, Nancy, what we're going to do is we're going to change the, the, uh, the checkout experience and, and we're going to have the customers uh, scan their own things, right? Um, her, that is not her habit, right? Her habit is the belt comes, she picks the stuff up, she's got the scanner right in front of her, she scans it, she sees whether, it, whether it's registered properly, she puts it over there. That, that she can do without thinking. And by the way, that's the way the mind likes it best. <laughs> the mind likes, when, likes uh, when we do something without expending a lot of mental energy on it. That's a habit, right? Yeah. And so, so it, it, would be, it would be very hard to get her to stop that habit and start a new habit where she helps somebody else do the thing that she, she used to do. And if you, if you didn't help her, get that new habit established, she'll go back to the old habit and say, I know they told me I should have the customer, but, but they're slow. I'm fast because I'm really good at this. Why do I want Jeff when he's here to fumble around with the scanner and take three times as long to do it as, as, uh, as I would? So what, what I would argue that, that the challenge that you have, I would identify it differently. I would identify it as, as how do you build a new habit, right? Yeah. And you should treat it that way and say, 
what we have to do is create a support structure that will take her from the old habit to the new habit. And while she's in that interim period, she is going to show what you previously called lack of discipline. I would just call it something different. She hasn't, she hasn't ingrained her, her subconscious doesn't have the, the, the new habit already in, ingrained. So it's not a permanent problem of discipline in my, in my view. It's a transitional problem of getting from old habit to, uh, to new habit. Yeah, that's wonderfully put. Thank you, Roger. That's very, uh, that's very helpful for me personally, and I'm sure it's helpful uh, for the listeners. One last question about Nancy before we move on. Uh, you've got some very, um, uh, you've got some really interesting thoughts on how organizations keep talent. I mean, it's always been important, but with the current talent migration that's that's taking place around the world, what's the most important thing that leaders have to worry about right now if they want to keep their good people? It's treating uh, their talent as unique individuals. Um, I, nobody likes to be tr treated generically in my, in my uh, estimation. Uh, even assembly line workers don't want to be treated generically. Now, it turns out that labor markets have different characteristics in some labor markets uh, where, where you know, the, the people, there are more people kind of wanting the job than there are jobs. Uh, a person can say, I'd like to be treated like an individual and, and the people offering the jobs will say, sorry, that ain't, that ain't in the cards. Though, isn't it interesting that a whole bunch of those people now are in short supply? And I wonder why that is. It's because it was unpleasant. It's unpleasant to be treated as a generic check-in, uh, uh, check-out person, a generic shelf stalker, a generic truck driver, right? Uh, yeah. or, or, the, or the like. So, so I think what's happening now reinforces, re reinforces the point. But as you get to more and more unique talent, right, um, they know that there is no one exactly like them. And that can be a, a movie star, that can be an athlete, uh, that, uh, that can be a research scientist, that can be an investment banker, that can be a trader, where the person knows if I leave, they'll have to do something different. Right, you're a New England Patriots uh, uh, you know, uh, fan, you know, um, when, what you and I would think of, uh, but my colleague Jennifer Rial, with whom I wrote a book, would say, "No, no, no, never." It's Peyton Manning. You and I would say Tom Brady was the greatest of all time. Um, when he left, right? Could you run the Tom Brady off offense? No. I mean, just like, just no. You had to, you had to figure out a different offense, uh, offense to run. That, that's an important sort of metaphor, right? Like, you know, if you lose the best oncology research scientist from, you know, Pfizer or something, you'll have to run a different oncology research program because you can't find a one-to-one -one re replacement. So, so there's a whole spectrum from there are one-to-one -one replacements all the way. To, there's for sure a one-to-one -one replacement all the way to there's no way in hell there's a one-on-one -on -one replacement and everything sort of in, in between. And I say, as you get farther and farther on, the, there's no replacement. Unless you treat that person as a unique individual, right? Yeah. You, will, you will lose them. 
And that's what, if we're going to stick to football, uh, you know, the Green Bay Packers uh, came, sailed so incredibly close to the wind on Aaron Rodgers, where their message to him was absolutely crystal clear until he, he threw, a, threw a, a serious fit uh, last year, which is, we pay you big bucks to throw the ball. manager uh i choose the players right you don't choose the players players don't choose players players are players general managers are general managers that's it yeah his response was hey man after 17 years all pro so many times mvp so many times super bowl champion can i just have a little bit of input and the answer yeah. was no and then he said well then i'm out of here now they've yeah. now they've figured out that he has to be treated not like every other football player on the on the Green Bay Packers roster, but as a special talent. Does that mean mm -hmm. he can do anything he wants? That he can get any player? No, but he can't be treated generically. And anytime you treat a, 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 a top talent generically, they will find it revolting at a deep level. Why? It's because they spent their entire life building up their uniqueness, taking yeah. more chances, working harder, staying in the gym longer, throwing more passes, whatever, whatever it is to be uniquely talented at what they've done. And then you say, but you're just generic. And they just yeah. say, last time I checked, there are lots and lots and lots of people who would like to use my talent. I'm out of here. Yes, absolutely. Well, in my, in my view though, it, it bites everywhere along that spectrum. So I think Nancy is gonna come to work to check people out better, better in a better disposition, with more creativity. If you say, you know, all of you are checkout people, but do you notice, Nancy, I'm sure you do, that Jeff always waits for you. He, he doesn't take the shortest line, he takes your line. Good for you. You must be doing something that, that is special, that makes that customer uh, a, a very happy, uh, happy customer, even to the point where he'll give up a minute or two minutes in line or five minutes in line for it. If that's the message that she gets, she'll stay, she'll be happier, she'll contribute more, she will, she will uh, provide advice to, to, to others, others around her, she'll be a great employee to the extent you're, you're, you're told, hey, 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 you're doing something that checkout people are not allowed to do. Then the message you're screaming at her is, you are generic, yeah. you don't matter, just do exactly what everybody else in your generic class uh, uh, do in the same way. Wait. Yeah, no, that's super advice. Roger, I have to do a time check with you. How um how hard of a timeline are you on? Do you can you stay a little bit longer? I, okay, I can that, stay a little bit longer. Absolutely. That's very this generous of you. Yeah, that's very generous of you, Roger. I, I want to talk about social media. Uh, now, this is this is in your last book, "When More Is Not Better," and I've been thinking about this a lot. So you talk about the impact that social media has had on the world, and and the ease of connectedness that social media has allowed, and the impact that it's had on the economy and distribution of wealth. And and the example that you use is 
how many years it took Frank Sinatra and Cindy Crawford to build up the audience that they had and the wealth that they created over the course of their careers, where then people like Kylie Jenner, Kim Kardashian, Ronaldo, they're accumulating that much wealth and audience in days or months. So you have some interesting thoughts on the consequences of that on the world. And I wonder if you would share a little bit about what your thoughts are on that dynamic. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, it, it, is, it is absolutely true. So, so in the modern world, thanks to markets being connected uh, and the cost of that connection uh, being lower and, and therefore colliding more markets together. And let's just use this, this as the one you've used as an example. That's the, what you're talking about is the market for fame, right? Um, and it's a very, very, very valuable market, right? Which is, as I point out in the book, like Kylie Jenner can make on one sponsored tweet, uh, kind of 1% uh, uh, of what Frank Sinatra made in his entire career. One sponsored tweet, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's just, it's, 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 she can make 1% of what uh, Frank Sinatra, so, so she has to do 100, 100 sponsored tweets to make his lifetime, lifetime earnings. Um, so what, 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 what that's happened is that, is that more and more of the economic returns are going to the people in the very tail of the distribution. So when, before you had social media connecting fame, the markets for fame were fragmented. There'd be fame in France, would not entirely connected to fame in Germany, fame in South of France, yeah. not connected to fame in North of France. Roger, I have to say you're, you're making me think of David, David Hasselhoff's singing career in Germany. Yes, no, exactly, exactly. Or, or the, fact that the, the fact that all these uh, movie stars have long historically made oodles of money doing incredibly cheesy commercials in, in, in uh, Japan. Uh, but they were okay to be cheesy commercials. Sylvester Stallone doing milk commercials because because they were never seen in in North America. You know, you're absolutely absolutely uh, right. Or the Spinal Tap reunion tour in Japan, but we won't we won't get into uh, we won't get into that. Um, so when those markets were 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 not as connected, right? There were more people who could make money on fame within an industry fame within an industry, within a geography, and you would have a wider distribution of the payoffs to fame. When there's one measuring stick, Instagram followers, right? And everybody wants to know who's got 160 or 200 million Instagram <clears throat> followers and, and Ronaldo and, and Kylie Jenner are, are put in the same bucket, right? Uh, not there's a soccer fame bucket and, and uh, it's fame fame uh, uh, bucket. What happens is that is that the fact that you have Instagram followers is cause of you having still more. It's an accelerating effect, and so it becomes distributed in a in a Pareto way, which means which is uh, which is a word for the eighty twenty rule, right? Where yeah. where a vast majority of the benefits goes to a very few. And that's what's driving inequality, right? In, in the world is that the returns to tail of the distribution capability, human capability, talent, if you want to call it that, are getting more and more and more and more extreme. Um, and even though the economy is growing at rates that was, are, is not dissimilar to rates that it used to grow at, 
there's just not nearly as much left over after the tail of the distribution, the people making 100 million bucks a year, a billion dollars a year, $2 billion a year, after they've gotten their cut, there's just a lot less. So the median family in the modern economy is stagnating. And that's creating the fissures in democratic capitalism that we're, that we're feeling. Uh, I mean, people, people, especially young people, are totally open to, to just trying something, an, an entirely new system. How about, or not new to the world, but new for, new for countries. So, so over 50% you know, of American women uh, under the age of 34 uh, would be happy to try socialism. Men are slightly lower than, than women. They're not over 50% uh, yet, but women are 50% of the electorate. So, you know, um, but that to me is all a consequence of more and more of the returns going to the very tail of the distribution. Yeah, and that's a loaded conversation because like Roger, on the other hand, this could, part of what I like about the connectedness that it, is it could offer opportunities for underrepresented group, whether it be racial minorities or, or women, as an example, can perhaps build and grow an audience. And I, see, I just see it locally in our, our own marketplace that there's some wonderful uh, you know, female uh, entrepreneurs, as an example, that have, that have grown uh, social audiences and made their own living and grown their own businesses. Uh, it's, it, I just get confused, I think, when it gets to the point where it becomes excessive and the distribution of wealth is so disproportionate is how do we find our way back? And I don't expect you to answer that, but it's just something that, uh, no. that we all should be thinking about. No, no. I mean, the hope, the hope of the Internet being flattening, right, uh, with, uh, you know, taking the highs down and giving everybody a voice and everything else, I, I just think, unfortunately, has been shattered. Yeah. So you can you 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 can find minority voices, female voices. There's no question you can. But if you just ask the overall stats, yeah. right, has the internet has the internet has the internet flattened distributions or accentuated the extremes yeah. of them? It's it's accentuated. It's including it who's got getting rich from it, right? Like yeah. it's uh, you know a couple yeah. of companies, Google and Facebook, now own <laughs> you know own everything own all that real estate yeah uh and yes other people can survive but you can mainly survive you know by paying homage to google and and uh, uh and facebook yeah. um and you know uh, i don't i don't begrudge kim kardashian or kylie jenner or ronaldo for for working on their 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 social media profiles um but they're a very, very, very small number of, of people. Uh, and the fact that they're doing well is not going to help democracy where 51% of people have to, have to support it. It's not going to help democracy thrive, and especially capitalist democracy, yeah. uh, which has been the dominant form of wealth kind of management in the modern world. Mm -hmm. Right. If you if you just add up all the dem democratic capitalist co uh, countries, uh, right, that's where the vast majority of of the GDP of the world is 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 housed. That is now having the biggest challenge it's had since World War Two. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, and that could be a whole other uh, episode uh, or a dozen. Yes, it could. It could. <laughs> yeah, Roger, I've loved this conversation. There are so many, uh, so many nuggets of, and pearls of wisdom that you have shared with us today. I, I wanna, I wanna finish off with a few personal questions if you'll indulge me. Yeah, yeah, shoot. Sure. So the the first one that I have for you, when I like, when I just look at the impact and the longevity of your career. I, I imagine you entering Harvard in, you know, in the 70s and, uh, and just wide-eyed and just there to learn and, and absorb and take in as much as you could. And I think there's a point in all of our lives where we, we have to transition from like the learner to the teacher. And, it, and it's not that we stop learning and you're evidence of that. But do you remember sort of when you made that transition from being like the youngest person in the room and just the wide-eyed learner to being the, 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 the sage, uh, wise person in the room and having to be the teacher and what that transitional period was like for you? Very interesting. Huh? Nobody's asked me that question before. So good, good, uh, uh, good work. You know, I, I guess th as I think about it, what uh, what kind of stunned me because I I was one of the unusual few. They later on cut this off completely. So what does that tell you about uh, about people like me? People like me. I went directly <laughs> from undergrad to business school. So I came out of I came out of uh, MBA at 24 and got into um, strategy consulting immediately because I thought that was interesting. And and I guess it it at first. I was sort of like, well, I'm just a kid and I'm kind of here to, here to learn. Um, but I would say what struck me early on is that if you were willing to think a little bit more fundamentally and a little bit longer and harder than even executives way older than you, you could come up with thoughts that would help them uh, solve, solve problems. Um, and, and that's, that's, so it was probably in that mid twenties where I said, where I said, you may be just a kid from Wallenstein, the hamlet of Wallenstein, 50 people in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but you seem to have a useful thoughts and ideas for people. So I would say by the time I was 30, I saw that as my job, helping people think uh, in a different way about their about whatever they were thinking about, um, and and um, and ever since that's that's been what I'm interested in. That's why the, the, the a new way to think is kind of a retrospective uh, book a book for me. It's sort of like well. I, that's what I've been doing. I've been I've been helping people in whatever situation they are, where they're kind of stuck, uh, take on a new way of thinking about whatever is keeping them, making them, and keeping them stuck. Um, and and I've I've really enjoyed it because because I really enjoy watching people free themselves up of stuckness when they're stuck at something and it may be as trivial as, you know, we, our market share is completely stuck. Uh, we're, we flatlined or our growth is completely stuck or it's, you know, my career is, is uh, stuck or, you know, I keep getting fired uh, from jobs as, as, as a CEO. Uh, 
what I do is say, well, from what I can understand, here's the model you've been using that's produced these, these results. And here's why it's not surprising. It wasn't a dumb model, it just wasn't as effective as, as you'd like. How about trying uh, this model? And yeah. since I enjoy doing it, I just, I just keep doing it and I'm gonna do it uh, as, uh, as, long as, I, as, as long as I can. You know, I, I, as, as you may or may not know, I'm a, I'm a Mennonite, I'm a purebred Mennonite uh, from, from 10 generations all, on all sides. And Mennonites are like, don't believe, generally speaking, in retirement. Uh, so, so I, pl I, I, I plan to just keep doing this as, as, as long as I'm able to. And as long as I'm able to help people with new ways to think, then I will keep doing it. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of yourself with, uh, with us through that answer. And I think I speak for your legion of, legion of fans when I, uh, when I say, thank goodness you had the courage at a young age in your mid-20s to, uh, to make that transition. And uh, Roger, if there, were, if there was one thing, uh, what are you most proud of in your career so far? Um, hmm. I, I guess it would be because I spent so long on it. It would be, uh, the Rotman school. I mean, I, I, I did get hired to take a school that wasn't doing very well and, and make it be something that university of Toronto could be proud of. I took it on to be something that Canada could be proud of. Um, and, um, and I think there was a lot of thought at the time that I was nuts uh, to, to think that, that that was possible and, and we did it. And I, and I use the we word, you know, kind of not accidentally. There was a ph phenomenal group there around me who, who um, set out on that goal and, and, and made it something, made it something that, that is, uh, is great. At its, at its peak, it's come off the peak a little bit. At its peak, we managed to get it up to third rated ranked in the world, the quantitatively, you know, by, by the Financial Times outside. So the Financial Times rates faculties on the basis of their publication by person. So it's, it's, it's adjusted by person. Number three, we were irrelevant when we started, like irrelevant, uh, inconsequential, and only Harvard and Wharton were ahead of us by the time we got by the time we got done. Nobody, nobody, not even anybody at Rotman School, anybody at University of Toronto, could have imagined uh, that. And we did it, and we and we we had a strategy for doing it, and and we went out and did it. So I, I guess I'm probably probably proudest of that, and I'm partially proudest of it because it was public service. Uh, I, I left a job I loved, a company I loved, and was was you know one of the part of major part owners of the company to come back to Canada to do public service, uh, and and I would argue that 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 was 15 years of public service that ended ended with uh, the country, the province, the city, and the university being better off. So that's probably the one. Yeah, that's amazing. That's huge. And of course, you can stay connected with us on all your favorite social media platforms. We don't have the following that uh, Kylie Jenner does by any stretch, but we're working on it. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
also on LinkedIn and on our YouTube channel. And you can find today's conversation and all of the prior episodes with people like Amy Ebenson that was uh, mentioned during today's conversation on our website at unleashresults.com. Roger, uh, this is a conversation that I will uh, that I will cherish and go back to uh, just for everything you shared with us today and, and all the tips and insights. Uh, what a wonderful way to spend an hour and a bit. So thank you for joining us and thank you for your extra time. Uh, Roger, where, uh, where can people track you down and find you? Well, they can. Uh, I have a website where I've organized everything that I that I've written, and that's just www.roger.rogerlmartin. Uh, uh, you gotta have my middle initial L for Lloyd. RogerLmartin.com. I'm on Twitter at RogerLmartin, and you mentioned it. Thank you for mentioning it earlier. The Medium uh, Medium series. If you're on on Medium, you just click me, and uh, uh, every week, the, you know, at least for the last seventy plus weeks I've, 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 I've written one. And so, uh, so those, those would be places to find me. Um, and, and I, this has been, a, this has been a, a real pleasure, uh, uh, Jeff and, and, uh, just do me the big favor of saying, saying a, a warm hello to Bob next, next, uh, next episode. He, you will, if you haven't had him on before, you will love it. Uh, he's funny. He's super smart and interesting. So, so say, say hi to him uh, for me. Roger, what a, just delightful to meet you and, and can't wait to keep our conversations going. This, is, this has been incredible. Thanks for tuning in. Now, if you found today's conversation helpful, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues who like learning as much as you do. And if you're a leader of a business and you're ready to take the next step because you know there's unleashed potential that exists within it, don't wait another minute. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.